talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. The Hamilton Bulldogs play the St. John Sea Dogs in tonight's Memorial Cup in New Brunswick. We'll see which dogs sink and which dogs swim. Get it? Go Bulldogs! Here's Scott Thompson! That's what he does to me. Good dad joke. Good dad joke, dad. You want some fish sticks with that cream corn? Potato puffs? Ooh, now I'm getting hungry. Uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. Dave Woodard in the newsroom. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Lots to talk about today. I don't even know what to get to. I don't know what to start with. Um, I don't know whether to start with my trip to Walmart this morning which was highly fascinating uh, because anybody who, who, who knows anything about me knows that I, I hate to shop. I have nothing to do with it. And, and the great thing about the global pandemic is uh, everybody is up on the wheel with online ordering and such. So I really see no need to uh, to go anywhere near a shopping mall for, for any reason. you know. And then COVID-19, yay, there you go, honey. I don't have to go. There's a pandemic. And now, of course, all that's lifting. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Well, so Daddy finds himself uh, the Shaggy DA, the Hairy Hound. You know the nose hair. I should have brought it. Where is it? I'm going to get it for you. I'll get it for you next break. Uh, it's in the bathroom. Uh, I had to get uh, my nose hair thing. I could have waited and talked about this at dinner time. That's why I'm doing it now. Um, you know the nose hair thing gone, just fried. And my wife says, "Well, you know." Um, I think you had a mullet when that was bought. So that was down and out. And then I don't know what happened, but, you know, I'm a bald guy. So I just shave it down to the wood. So I just have like one of those electric things. And I just do it myself. Right down to the wood, number one, here we go. I don't know what I've done. I've lost it. I don't know where I put it. I don't know what it's done. So here I am. I'm just getting shaggier and shaggier, waiting for a nose hair trimmer that does not want to work. And a uh, a hair th- thing I cannot find. And I'm sure now that I bought a new one, I will find it. But anyway, so it's getting to the point where uh, either I, I go to a barber and actually get it done professionally. Or I, I, I try to do something. And, you know, I've been delaying. I've been procrastinating so long with all of this. Uh, I, I look like, uh, what's his name, Elliot, when he came back from uh, on the NHL coverage, when he, when he came back from um, the COVID thing. Remember, he looked like, the, you know, uh, the mountain man. That's sort of what I'm starting to look like. So it's getting to the point where um, I either have to go to a barber and get my haircut or go and find the other the other one or or go to walmart so i i busted this morning and got up early and went to walmart and uh and i got there and the parking lot's already full and i mean like uh well like a walmart parking lot 
Maybe Costco's got to run for the money as far as parking lots. But anyway, and I'm thinking, oh, this is just going to be hell. It's just going to be hell. It's going to. I don't know what I'm looking for. I don't know. I'm just like a complete newbie here at Walmart. They're going to just. It's like I'm. It's like I'm a French fry in a McDonald's parking lot, and the seagulls are coming to get me. So, uh, so I walk into the Walmart, and there's the greeter. I'm thinking, yay! Where's the haircutting things? There we go. In and out, because I'm Mr. In and Out. I'm Mr. In and Out. And the Walmart lady uh, in the blue smocks talking on the phone. So I'm thinking, well, it's got to be a quick thing. So I just sort of stand here. Num, 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 num. She turns back. So, well, clearly, um, you know, that's not going to work. So I, I turn to the left, and there's the produce department because, you, you know, beer produce or a hair clipper what do you need right there we got it for you all in one stop shopping so i asked the produce ladies and saying i know it's got nothing to do with you but any direction at all the hair things the nose trimmer all that look at me and and she pharmacy okay thank you get over to pharmacy then there's a pharmacy lady actually there which was great and you know aisle four there you go I'm down there, I'm looking, I'm making my, uh, deciding and, and whatever, and it happened all so quickly, I thought, well, I should do other shopping. And then, of course, I shook my head and realized what the heck I was saying and, and snapped out of that. But I, I went in there, and I, I, within a matter of five minutes, maybe ten, okay, we'll say ten. Okay, we'll say I spent ten minutes uh, looking at nose hair trimmers and, and shears for your head. And, you know, bingo, bango, lots of selection, uh, found what I needed. And I thought, I can't believe this has all happened so quickly. I thought, and, and I had even forgot my glasses in the car. So I thought, I'm really cooked here. And anyway, so uh, then I get to the checkout. And I think, oh, this, this is going to be like Costco. It's going to be hell. And, you know, I, I, and then, of course, you have to all file into, like, the cattle trail there. You know, here's where you can only enter in one place to the, get to the checkouts. So, you know, everybody's running for that because once you get into that maze, you want to be first, right? Or the top five or whatever. Anyway. So I, I get in there and we're moving through like, uh, you know, I, I was sweating. I needed a water bottle. I was running so fast. Uh, and then when you come out the other end, um, there's these automated checkouts and it's like, king, 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 king. And, and not just one or two, but a whole pile of them. So there was absolutely no lineup despite a full parking lot and a ton of people in the place. And I'm in and out in 10 minutes. Ba-boom! So they asked me to rate the service. I said, well, except for that lady in the blue smock at the, at the beginning, at the top of the store. I thought it was fabulous. But I am never going back again until, of course, all of these units that I've just bought break down. And now you know the rest of the story. Hello to all my fellow Walmart shoppers out there. I'm not sure when the last time I was in, or if this has just been my first time. All right. Oh, yeah, and they sell beer there, too. Did you notice that? The city of Hamilton and Mayor Fred and the downtown BIA invite residents to attend a ceremony at Gore Park Thursday. Uh, to welcome the Hamilton Bulldogs back from Wednesday night's Memorial Cup final, uh, all taking place starting at 145 Thursday at Gore Park. And to talk more about all of this, the mayor of the city of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, he's with us now. Fred, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. 
Uh, very well, Scott, and thank you. And what a what an exciting day for Hamilton. Looks like the uh, the hockey game's going to the dogs, one way or the other. <laughs> exactly. We'll see which dog sinks, which dog swims here. Uh, tell everybody, you know, it's been great to 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 see the exposure that Hamilton gets from this, and and from having uh, you know a team in this tournament, which obviously has lots of eyes on it, uh, even coverage on TSN and such. What does it mean? What does it do for Hamilton to have the Bulldogs in the Memorial in the Memorial Cup. Well, I mean, it's it's great for Hamilton profile, but more importantly, great for Hamilton hockey. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, aspiring young hockey players out there, and uh, as as has been said, uh, the Memorial Cup is one of the most difficult uh, cups to actually achieve. And so, the fact that uh, this great team and their coaching staff. Uh, and uh, and uh, Steve Steos and Michael Andelar have put a team together that has got us all the way to the Memorial Cup is uh, is absolutely brilliant, and uh, we look forward obviously to a, to a, a dog's win, and we look forward to uh, also hosting people at the convention center tonight, uh, uh, sponsored by Electra and the convention center. So doors are open mm-hmm. to five o'clock if people want to gather and. And uh, watch and view with others rather than, uh, you know, in the basement at home. Uh, they can do that. 400 people can gather at the convention center and the, uh, the game is at 6 and they can, the doors are open at 5. So come on out and uh, join, join in with your fellow fans to, uh, to help celebrate a great game and hopefully a great win. That's a great idea. Five o'clock at uh, the convention center. You want to gather as Hamiltonians and uh, watch the Bulldogs win. Uh, that's a great way to do it. What a great idea again. So tell us what's happening tomorrow either way uh, and, and what the city's got planned. Well, that's it. And, you know, either way, this, is, this has been a great team. They've gone a long, long way, and I think it's worthy of celebration, win or lose. And so we're going to host a reception for them at Gore Park. Starts at 11, but the, at 1.45, we're going to have a kind of a formal program. It, uh, it, it actually dovetails with the Hamilton Downtown BIA uh, Gore Park Summer Promenade Program, which generally runs Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So it's a nice fit. Food trucks will be out. Uh, generally, there's music out there uh, for, the, for that event. And so it all fits nicely together. And we look forward to... Uh, welcoming them and celebrating uh, either way, win or lose. But hopefully uh, it'll be even sweeter if it's a win uh, at, in St. John's tonight. And uh, I, I look forward to having uh, Mayor Reardon, uh, the mayor of St. John's, wear a Hamilton Bulldog sweater as opposed to the other way around. So uh, <laughs> that bet is on. And uh, But any in any event, uh, you know, Michael Andelar and Steve Steos and uh, – and Coach McKee and, and the entire team ought to be congratulated for bringing it this far. And either way, we're going to celebrate their arrival tomorrow and let them know that uh, we we appreciate their effort and uh, a job well done. Job well done this year. Win or lose uh, tonight. We've all been watching uh, Saint uh, Saint John host this and and talk to various people out there and such. Uh, any thoughts of getting this tournament to Hamilton? What we need to do to make that happen? Any more chatter on Arena or any of that stuff, Fred? Well, I mean that's always uh, that's always part of the conversation, and certainly we work we work with the uh, Memorial Cup and OHL and others to uh, to continuously look at opportunities to bring some of these major events to uh, to our city. And certainly that's an ongoing conversation. Uh, we look forward to, as you well know, uh, you know, the Great Cup coming back here uh, mm-hmm. next year. And, uh, you know, this is an opportunity for us to, uh, to look at, you know, basketball uh, coming this weekend as well. 
so there's no shortage of sporting events, including the Tiger Cats coming up. And then, you know, the uh, the great Arkells concert, not a sporting event, but an yeah. event far none yeah. that was absolutely spectacular uh, last Saturday that really speaks to not only the great stadium and the great events we can host there, but the, the great popularity and the bringing together of uh, many, many people in our community to celebrate the Arkells and our city uh, as a, a, a great place to host concerts and uh, celebrate together post-pandemic, which, you know, gen- would absolutely happen at the Great Arkells concert. So any time we can uh, we can bring events here that can bring people together, we're interested in pursuing that. Lots going on in the Hammer, and of course, uh, starting tomorrow at 11 a.m. with the festivities officially at 1.45, starting at 11 a.m. in Gore Park, Appreciation Day for the Bulldogs, win or lose, and 5 o'clock tonight, this afternoon, at the Convention Center, you can gather and watch the game together with fellow Hamiltonians. All right, Fred, thanks so much for the time, much appreciated, good luck to everybody, congratulations, and uh, hopefully we're celebrating big time tomorrow. Thank you. Look forward to that, and uh, do tune into the game. It's going to be a fantastic game. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I first noticed there was ketchup dripping down the wall, and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry at the attorney general's AP interview and had thrown his lunch against the wall. All right, that's Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, Chief of Staff Assistant, in one of many clips that uh, raised a lot of eyebrows yesterday during the January 6th committee uh, surprise hearing that they held yesterday with uh, this uh, this person being interviewed, including an incredible story which happened in the limo uh, in um, with Donald Trump and his security uh, staff. To talk all about this and the fallout of it, Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, what Good is afternoon. the fallout for this? Um, uh, obviously, it's one person uh, giving evidence. Some of it she saw. Some of it was, uh, you know, heard from other or, or relayed from other people. What's the fallout of this today? And, and how serious is all of this? Well, I mean, the fallout, I think, is going to be exactly what one would suspect, that the former president is pushing back on this person as being um, a phony, uh, quote unquote, uh, and a nobody within the administration, ignoring the fact that she was a senior aide to the chief of staff at the time and was a fly on the wall in uh, a number of meetings, whether they were in the Oval Office or the West Wing or uh, on Air Force One. So I think that um, Republicans trying to discount this testimony uh, is only going to go so far. Uh, And on the flip side, the committee is saying that the information that was learned is uh, important and paints a further picture that this was not a riot uh, that was spontaneous, that this was a riot that was premeditated based on what the testimony shows the former president knew uh, in the hours leading up to his rally on the ellipse. And that is really the legality of all of this, whether they it, it, there was a sort of a plan in place or certainly knew what was going on and didn't react to it, as opposed to all of the ear and eye candy that we're hearing about what happened in the limousine or in, in the case of of with the, the thrown plate of food and such. Um, that being said, Secret Service has reacted to the story she told inside. Uh, uh, she told about what happened inside uh, the presidential limousine. What do you know there? 
as far as how credible this information is, whether it happened or it didn't happen, and them testifying? Well, uh, I mean, I think that there's a lot that we have to read into. Number one, um, most of the reporting on this Secret Service coming back and pushing back on the testimony is from one unnamed source. Um, and, and you know, you have to read into whether one unnamed source can be uh, relied upon any differently than one named source who is testifying under oath. I think that's that's something that's important to remember here. Uh, but also, um, you know, it's widely known uh, in the D.C. circle who this unnamed source is. And, you know, realistically, it was a former he was a former member of the Secret Service who was brought into the Trump administration and then at the end of the administration went back into the Secret Service. So are there questions here being raised about potential uh, political pressure or potential, you know, um, political tainting of of the Secret Service to try and push back on this testimony from under oath? Um, That is a real question. Uh, And number two, uh, the, the committee is actively saying, well, look, Secret Service, you've already testified a number of times behind closed doors. If you have other information to bring forward, now's the time to do it. Come and put it under oath. Don't hide behind this cloak of anonymity. Would this have not come out initially, Reggie? Uh, as you said, they've been interviewed already. Would this, you know, tell your story? Here's what happened. Would this have not come out? Uh, I mean, look, this 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 would the testimony that that we heard yesterday um, was told to the committee behind closed doors uh, over a course of 20 hours. But I think what's remarkable here is that this testimony that was that was given both in the the private deposition and then yesterday um, under oath before the committee was new information the public didn't know about. um, And that includes reporters who have been looking at this for for more than a year and a half now. Uh, And this was from a White House that had an active leak problem where everything inside the palace uh, was no longer clouded in intrigue because everybody was able to see inside the administration to find out that there was potential knowledge here um, of weapons in the crowd and of the potential dangers that existed. Um, You know, there was a real you know, uh, fear here that the committee thought that if this didn't get out onto the public record now, that it might not. And why is that? Well, there was a fear that maybe political pressure would get behind Cassidy Hutchinson, or there was some kind of political threat that could follow Cassidy Hutchinson. So they wanted this information to be put out now, as opposed to being put out in a report that came out later this fall. So will we, and again, those are the issues. Uh, the other stuff is is color per se, but will we see Secret Service coming back and denying what the story has been inside the limo? There's stories floating around that they say, no, that's not, you know. Obviously, it was known that he wanted to go, that uh, Donald Trump wanted to go uh, to, the, to the protest. They didn't want him to go. That's obvious. But as far as what ha- happened actually in the limousine, uh, will we hear them uh, uh, tell the opposite story? I mean, that's what the committee is looking for. Um, you know, we have to look at this in a big picture right now. You have that story out there under oath, uh, under, um, you know, under charge of perjury, uh, if the person is lying, uh, but it's on the public record right now. And at the same time, they've Mm -hmm. now said, well, look, Secret Service, if you're going to say this, don't hide behind anonymity, come forward, put this on the record and talk to us and and correct the record. If you think something is wrong, don't have the former president simply sending out his truths uh, via email to, to try and disparage um, the person who was offering their testimony. So, you know, the committee is saying, look, the seat is open, come and fill it. Whether or not they do it, uh, you know, I think that's an open question. And if they don't, does that raise questions to, well, what's the Secret Service actually up to? Um, and I'm sure this is the last thing anybody in the Secret Service wants to do. They don't want to get involved with any of this stuff politically, do they? 
Well, I, I mean, you know, I'm sure that they don't, um, you know, their, their job is to to protect the president and to, to you know, uphold the security of um, of White House assets and White House personnel. But I think that, you know, there are legitimate questions here as to people mm. from the Secret Service that were brought into the administration. What do they potentially know? And if they've been put back into the Secret Service in a protection manner, um, you know, are they working potentially in a compromised situation now? Because mm. there could be some, you know, background force saying do this or don't do this. I think those are actual questions that if the committee doesn't get to, that it's very possible that the Department of Justice may go after. Uh, what do you think uh, the chances are of others being inspired by uh, Cassidy Hutchinson and what she has said and coming forward on this? Um, again, it just seems that uh, at the beginning of this, we thought it was going nowhere and the same old, same old. Now it seems to be, obviously, there's there's lots more to find out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, I think that there's there's a, a a shrinking number of people who think that this that this isn't going um, anywhere. And I think that we have to look at this in the in the scope of every single person that's come forward to testify so far has done so mostly on their own volition, number one. But number two, they have all been uh, members of the Republican Party or voting Republicans who voted for Donald Trump and potentially would vote for Donald Trump again because they are still loyal to the Republican Party. The information that's coming out is not some partisan witch hunt uh, or attack on the former president. These are Republicans mm. who generally feared um, for America's you know, ability to move forward as, as a democracy. Um, so I think there are potentials here that more people may come forward. But, you know, considering that yesterday's testimony really threw the former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and the former president basically into the bullseye of this congressional investigation, um, I think the question will be, does that, you know, force somebody into a spot of, of like Mark Meadows actually paying attention to the subpoena and coming and talking, mm. or does he continue to resist raising questions of what are you hiding? So what's next in this, Reggie? Where do we go from here? Well, I mean, there will be more hearings. Um, you know, there was only supposed to be seven in total. And here we are yesterday holding the first surprise hearing. Um, does that mean that there's more to come? It's very likely. If people decide to come out uh, of the woodwork and start to push back on things that they knew or do know now, that could extend these hearings. And we've already heard from um, the ranking Republican in the committee, Liz Cheney, kind of hint around these these statements that were presented at the end of the hearing yesterday that potential witness intimidation may be a factor here. So does that draw even more people out or more hearings? It's possible. All of this is just going to end up in a report um, put together later this fall. But the Department of Justice is carrying out investigations and they actively were putting out warrants in the last few days, seizing cell phones from John Eastman, a lawyer that was working with former President mm. Donald Trump, trying to push the notion of overturning the election. So the DOJ is doing a concurrent investigation and actively working towards potential charges here. So we know what happens next is anyone's guess, but it's not going to be nothing. Something is clearly going on. Unbelievable. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global for uh, tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This has happened, and I'm not sure how many people uh, care or notice or are aware or know why. 
So let's talk about it. Transport Canada has officially handed over operation of the Burlington uh, Burlington Canal Piers to the Hamilton-Oshawa Port Authority. Uh, this happened in a media event on Tuesday. And now uh, Hamilton has a lot more control over this scenario. To talk more about it, Ian Hamilton is with us, President and CEO of the Hamilton-Oshawa Port Authority, and is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, very well. Thanks for having me. So anybody that's been around this area for any length of time and, and watched the, the boats come in and go, uh, come and go and, you know, the bridge go up and down and such know that, uh, this, the, the, this whole facility and such is, uh, governed through the Canadian government, through the federal government. So what has happened? What is different now? So you, uh, cast your mind back about a year when, um, Transport Canada had to make the decision to put a gate on the on the on the piers at uh, Fisherman's Pier, and uh, the communities were very unhappy, no longer having access to the piers. So we worked with Transport Canada and the City of Hamilton and the cities of Burlington to find a um, an eloquent 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 solution, uh, whereby we would take over the piers. Uh, we're going to make some safety improvements on them, and then we'll ultimately lease them to the cities of Hamilton and Burlington to reopen them for public access. So why the gates? Why was this a concern? Um, at present, there's um, there's some trip hazards and some safety concerns that need to be uh, need to be addressed on the piers. So we've um, Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority has assumed responsibility and the costs for uh, for making those repairs. So basically, it, it's to make it a safe scenario and in a safe environment for people who want to go and visit. Yeah. Yes. Very much so. And then the nice thing is it's very consistent with we've a, we have a vision for creating Fisherman's Pier as a really neat uh, recreational spot. Um, you may have heard that we've moved the um, taken over also the uh, control of the lighthouse and we're going to yeah. relocate the lighthouse to make it more accessible. Um, the Keeper's Cottage we're going to restore, restoration of the lighthouse and um, just to create a lot of more uh, public access and amenities down there to make it a nice, um, a nice spot to enjoy your, uh, enjoy your Sunday afternoon looking at the ships. How how difficult a deal was this to do, considering the different levels of government here and just different views, different visions? Um, at the end, it was a uh, it's it's a little bit complicated because of all of the ownerships and who owns what assets out there. But mm -hmm. um, the nice thing was that everybody was aligned. Um, cities of Hamilton, Burlington, the community, the Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority was firmly committed to uh, ensuring that we could um, sort of sort of meet those community um, expectations for access to the piers and Transport Canada was uh, was quite excited to see that happen as well. So I think um, there's it, it's funny whenever when everyone agrees, uh, even even difficult challenges are easy to overcome. <laughs> there you go, and and shows what we can do when we work together. Uh, this is about the piers. Yeah. This isn't the lift bridge or any of that. This is the areas surrounding it, the parkland and such surrounding it. Yeah, well, specifically, what the announcement was was just the piers. So the areas yeah. that um, extrude out into Lake Ontario, um, and then also on the uh, the Hamilton side, the area that comes out into the into the harbor. So what's next now for this? So the next thing is that we um, we'll start to um, start the project in terms of um, making them uh, making them safe, and we've already started to um, to start to kind of engineer that. Then, uh, then we'll enter into agreements with the cities of Hamilton and Burlington. Um, ultimately, I think they'll need council approval for those, and then they'll take over those um, 
the I guess the um, uh, the custody custody of the of the peers, and they'll take over responsibility for any um, any recreational amenities that will go on to the peers. Any specific vision at this point? Uh, we have a vision that um, that we put together in conjunction with the community, but overall vision for Fisherman's Pier and uh, Fisherman's Piers. And we see the, or the piers and we see them. Our, our vision was kind of like planters and um, and benches and a nice place to walk out and um, and enjoy the enjoy the view and the fresh air. Uh, that's really what we what we saw it as. And the, we'll, we'll work. I think that the city was very much aligned with what our vision was, so we all want the same thing. So I think that that's, um, that's exactly the, uh, the direction they'll go. Last question, Ian, any idea before a uh, timeline before people can actually use this area? Uh, we, we believe um, that the spring of next year, for, for the actual piers and reopening the gates wow. is um, is a realistic time when we can get the um, get all of the safety work uh, completed. So we think that unfortunately um, this year it's unlikely they'll be open between now and uh, now and the end of the uh, the season. But um, the spring of next year, again, we're uh, I'm pushing our engineers very hard to um, to be able to uh, meet that um, meet that objective. Boy, that's great news. Ian Hamilton with us, president and CEO of the uh, Hamilton-Oshawa Port Authority, uh, Transport Canada now officially handing over operation of the Burlington Canal Piers uh, to the Port Authority, and uh, it's just going to contribute to a beautiful waterfront in Hamilton and Burlington. Ian, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with this moving forward. Great. Thanks for letting us tell our story. All right. You may have heard this story, and uh, this is all in relation to uh, the horrific shooting in Nova Scotia, the investigation going on uh, in that. A scathing letter from an RCMP communications manager released on Tuesday says RCMP Commissioner uh, Brenda Lucky referred to direct pressure uh, from the federal public safety minister to release firearm details uh, about the shooting in the days after uh, when it happened in Nova Scotia. This was all, I guess, um, um, around the same time that uh, the Prime Minister's office releasing uh, gun control uh, information and, and, and more policy there and trying to tie the two together is the allegation. Duff Conagher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's with us now. Duff, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, hope you are as well. So uh, thanks for the time, Duff. Your your thoughts on how uh, the gun control legislation and the the investigation into this Nova Scotia shooting, how do they cross paths? How do they interwine? Well, uh, just more and more um, evidence coming out of uh, political interference that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and former Public Safety Minister Bill Blair and uh, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky are still denying, um, but there's just more and more notes. In this case, now a letter uh, sent by our CMP officer, uh, manager of communications in Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia, writing a letter to the commissioner saying that she found her comments uh, during a conference call inappropriate and uh, putting pressure on the force to do something that would help the uh, liberals and, uh, in terms of the the spin and the frame uh, of introducing their gun control legislation, so what so, did the government uh, want? Uh, what did the deny it? But uh, yeah, the evidence is mounting. So what did they want them to do? Explain how they wanted the information of the guns used and what that was for. 
they wanted the information of what the guns were uh, exactly that were used uh, because uh, they wanted it to relate to the guns they were proposing to put further restrictions on. And so mm-hmm. if this uh, mass shooting was using these guns that the liberals were proposing to restrict further, then that would uh, help their case for making those restrictions. There may be and, some out uh, there that, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and the the pushback from the officers where it's an ongoing investigation. And, you know, even if we have some sense of what the guns may be until the investigation's finished, it'd be premature to say these were the guns that were definitely used. And also that the families hadn't even been notified uh, of this information. And so for it to be coming out in the media before there's even information going to the families of the victims was also inappropriate. I'll play devil's advocate here, Dove. Uh, many who are supporting all of this would say, well, what's wrong with that? What, you know, this is all about making the safe, the, the streets safer. This is all about, uh, getting guns off, off the streets and such. Uh, what difference does it make? And obviously what you've said is it will compromise the investigation, let alone what the families knew. Uh, or didn't know, but what do you say to those that would say this is all part of the, you know, the whole gun control plan? This is what it's about: clarity, transparency. Yeah, it is a it is a counterpoint. Um, there'll be lots of people sympathetic to the liberals wanting this information out there, but you can't interfere in police investigations in any way. Mm-hmm. So if you allow this kind of interference, you're allowing interference, and then the interference could be much worse in the next situation uh, where the political pressure is to not prosecute someone or charge them. Um, It's a systemic problem with the reporting uh, structure for the RCMP commissioner. Yes, the RCMP has to put a budget forward to parliament and has to report on uh, where there are problem areas to a minister or to parliament. But every time you allow these interactions of reporting, it's a behind closed door meeting or or a phone call where pressure can be put by the politician. And there's no real check on that uh, right now that is independent of the RCMP or cabinet. And that's what's needed. We need a change to the reporting uh, so that the reporting really should only go one way. The, the government cannot be directing how the, the RCMP decides to enforce the law because that direction will always have uh, be tainted by partisanship and, and political concerns of the ruling party, which leads down a slippery slope to the RCMP targeting people that the ruling party doesn't like and that the cabinet ministers uh, don't like. And that's, of course, extremely dangerous. And all coming at a time when many are questioning whether the Prime Minister's office has too much power. Are you surprised this is happening with Bill Blair, uh, considering his past affiliation with law enforcement? No, because across the country, you have these kind of um, uh, structures where the head of the police is reporting to a politician. And no real restrictions on the reporting um, that are in the law or in terms of how it works. I mean, really the reporting should just be going one way. It should all be in writing. Uh, and um, it should be all disclosed because the force would be saying, oh, we don't have enough resources to enforce this law. That would allow the minister to know that the next budget, they should consider uh, 
giving more resources to specifically to enforce particular laws or other problems with enforcement. And it shouldn't really be going the other way at all. The, the minister should not be having conversations with the commissioner uh, in, at, or, or RCMP officers at all about operations. The Where do you think this out, is going? Where do you think this is going, Duff? The law sets out the budget and uh, can make policy statements that, you know, that they think this area of law enforcement is very important, but they can't be directing the RCMP. It's just extremely dangerous to allow that. And it's allowed across Canada. So I'm not surprised Bill Blair wouldn't see a problem with it because he would have experienced it as a chief of police himself. Obviously, this is a very high profile investigation with the Nova Scotia case and such. Where do you see this going, Duff? Well, the commissioner, uh, Brenda Lucky, is going to be testifying, and I'm sure the denials will continue. Uh, And then there'll be findings made uh, by the commissioner, and there's no limit. The commissioner can make findings. uh, uh, The the inquiry commissioner can make findings in this area to to say that, you know, their conclusion is that uh, there was political interference and and recommendations for stopping that in the future. and so uh, it's going to go on until the commission report comes out, and then we'll see what the government does about it. The, the, the calls have been longstanding to make our police forces more independent and less uh, open to political interference. And those calls have been there for decades. Um, but like every watchdog and law enforcement officer, politicians like to have them just arm's length away and when mm. you're arm's length away lots of people think oh that's good enough but it's not because you can grab someone who's arm's length away and shake them and <laughs> politicians like to have that power over law enforcement officials including all the watchdogs that watch over them which the rcmp does as well the rcmp enforces all the anti-corruption laws and uh, rules in the criminal code and um politicians like to be able to influence what they're doing uh in case they get caught in a corruption situation, just like they like to have some control over the information commissioner, the lobbying commissioner, the ethics Hmm. commissioners across the country. Duff, we got to catch you off there. We're plumb out of time. Duff Conagher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Uh, Scathing letter from the RCMP communications manager says uh, the commissioner referred to uh, direct pressure from the safety minister to offer details on the firearms used in the Nova Scotia shooting. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. This is an interesting, uh, you know, first of all, I can't believe how much interest there is in uh, the leadership of the Conservative uh, Conservative Party and the race for uh, a leader, which started, I think by the time it's over, it'll be like six months by the time it all comes to a head in uh, September. And of course, we know that Pierre Polyevra is the front runner, uh, followed by, I guess, Jean Charest after that, who many have considered a centrist and could probably win more uh, of the center and those from uh, the left over. But uh, this is an ongoing discussion with Michael Tobe and I, uh, of where the direction or what the direction of the Conservative Party is and how that is being received. And it seems that, uh, you know, people like me saying, hey, this party's got to come more to the center. Uh, recent polls showing that, no, that's not necessarily what people want. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, and was a speechwriter to former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And with us now, Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. My pleasure, Scott. Hope you are, too. 
So what is the difference? And, you know, we, we, we talk about centrists and those too far to the right and such. Now, Pierre Polyever, he's a young guy. Uh, you know, he's not your old typical grandfather, uh, grandfather's conservative or, or that sort of thing. But, but how would you compare him? What is he like? Why is he not your grandfather's conservative, which a lot of people unfairly perhaps will generalize about him? Yeah, um, it is unfair to do, but on the other hand, you have to realize that politics is evergreen and political philosophies are evergreen, too. You know, based on the way that, for example, a lot of today's conservatives might have been in the 19th century classical liberals, because the theories were actually fairly similar, not exactly Mm. the same, but, you know, close enough that you could sort of see some of them bridging one side or the other. In the case of Pierre Polyevra, um, I think it's fair to say that the Conservative Party of Canada has changed a fair bit. Now, the actual Conservative Party of Canada has only existed since 2003, but conservatism has been represented by different sides. The old Progressive Conservative Party, the old Reform Party, which became the Canadian Alliance, and they merged and became the Conservative Party of Canada. So if you take the whole thing as a big big circle or a big ball and you try to figure it out, the end result is that Pierre Polyevre represents more of what modern small-c conservative thinking is like. And I've said it a million times, I'll say it again, why not? You know, it's the basic concept of lower taxes, smaller government, more individual rights and freedoms, a more muscular foreign policy, uh, trade liberalization, you know, many other things along those lines. I don't have to go through the whole list. But the end result is that that meshes with modern small-c conservative thinking, which is not just common in Canada, it's common in the United States, parts of Europe, Asia, etc. Um, the conservatism that you're talking about, or the, the, the red Toryism that's represented by Jean Charest, that is a model that was more common in the old federal progressive conservative party, but obviously still exists in a smaller fashion in the modern conservative party of Canada. There have been studies, there have been stats, there have been charts, you can look them up, that more than two-thirds of the current party membership would be under the designation of what are called blue Tories or right-leaning conservatives. About a third are red Tories, but it could be even lower than that, because the last study I saw was a few years ago, pardon me, and things have obviously changed to some extent. The whole concept of conservatism, not to be long-winded, is to ensure that both the blue Tory wing and the red Tory wing are included in the conservative umbrella. The key is, which direction do you want to head in, And you actually said it right off the top, because I was going to leave with it, too. What studies are showing right now is that the type of conservatism that people want is the blue Tory type of conservatism. They want that, but obviously they want subtle Canadian twists on various things like social issues and whatnot, which is not a big issue in the Conservative Party, believe it or not. There are obviously social conservatives who are members or a supportive of it. I certainly would be part of it. But most of us are, again, I'm also in this camp, fiscal conservatives. That's really what guides the conservative party, what guides the conservative movement, and what guides conservative leaders, such as the acknowledged frontrunner, Pierre Polyevre. Uh, many will uh, stereotype and say uh, the old conservatives are all old white males. Why is Pierre Polyevre appealing to youngers? Why is, this, is he appealing to not the typical demographics and the younger demographics? Again, those stats were correct decades ago. They're not as accurate now. And I think you also have to look at the ethnic and social makeup of the country. It has changed considerably. If you look at a lot of riding associations from the country, not even just in Ontario, 
<clears throat> pardon me, but beyond that as well, many of the members of the riding association come from are not necessarily from are not, are not necessarily older white Canadians. Let's just use that as a demographic. They come from all over the place, from different ethnic and religious minorities. They come from different walks of life. The Conservative Party of Canada is a big tent. Aside from what the political left and progressives and others want to say, it's not true. It hasn't been true not only in years, but in decades. But it's a nice line, and obviously it scares certain people to their side, so I'm kind of used to it. But look, the Conservative Party right now, because it's so different, it means that people like Pierre Polyevra and others have to obviously appeal to a broader swath of individuals, including young people, millennials, Gen Xers, or Gen Zers, etc. You have an enormous amount of people that you appeal to, so you propose policies that you believe are not only necessarily in line with your own thinking, but are also in line with what you think the Conservative Party should be doing or should be proposing to ensure that the country does extremely well. That's why Paul Lieber has been doing, obviously, some of the traditional conservative things you would talk about, lower taxes, smaller government, etc. But he's also been talking about affordable housing, cryptocurrency, up until, you know, the, the market plummeted recently, and issues of that nature. So it's appealing to a different base, a broader base, and a more complex base, to be perfectly frank. Uh, only got a, f- a few seconds left. Uh, okay. We saw last week uh, what happened with Roe versus Wade in the United States. Uh, many yeah. have been saying on social media, where's Pierre Polyevra on this? Obviously, the left will use this as a scare tactic uh, for those on the right. Uh, where, where is Pierre Polyevra on Roe versus Wade? Uh, and why hasn't he said something so far? Uh, he hasn't said anything so far because it's not our issue, quite frankly, Scott. Um, although I've written about it and others have written about it and talked about it, this is an issue that affects the United States. Roe v. Wade was a case that was decided by the U- U.S. Supreme Court. It was not decided by the Supreme Court of Canada. Canada does not have anything on the books of that nature. We actually, you know, in terms of the So why would he not just come out and say that, Michael, and just say, hey, you know? Because it's not necessary. Does he have to also then comment on what every government in Asia, Africa, and Europe does as well? No. He will no, but this is something that's pretty important. The, this, he'll make it this is a pretty big issue for Canadians. At some point, but it's not going to be as big as you think it is. And it should not be this momentous decision. He'll make his decision in terms of which way he wants to go. I know that he has some social conservative views and some social moderate views. So my guess is it wouldn't surprise me if his position was different, say, than my position on Roe v. Wade and different than other party members. But it's not going to be objectionable. It'll it'll be understood by most Canadians. And most importantly, you know, Mr. Polyever, like Mr. Charest, Mr. Brown and others, who have commented in some cases on Roe v. Wade and other cases have not, it's not going to be out of line completely with Canadian conservative thinking or Canadian thinking in general. And I would strongly doubt it's going to be anything similar to the explosive or the explosive discussions that we're seeing right now in the United States. Michael Tobe with us, Troy Media and Looney Politics uh, columnist, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, former speechwriter for uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. As always, Michael, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You too. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we're hearing more and more about this story. The Bank of Nova Scotia, Telus Corp, Canadian Tire uh, have all paused or uh, stopped sponsorship deals with Hockey Canada in response to the governing body's handling of sexual assault allegations involving a group of teenage players and a woman 
woman in 2018. To talk more about all of this and, um, and, and what you do if you're a business and find yourself in this situation, let's bring in Marvis, uh, Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well. With that intro music, I think I should say namaste. <laughs> exactly. I know. It's like yeah, we're going to put some warm uh, stones on your back now. Just get you to relax here, Marvin. Um, so I think a lot of people are surprised about this story because we know uh, Hockey Canada and, and what they've done and what they've built over the years. Uh, do you think a lot of people are stunned at this allegation, at these allegations? I'm going to say yes to this. Now, Scott, if you don't mind, let me just take you back and say, because we're focusing on the sponsorship side of this, why do corporations sponsor these kinds of organizations? Generally speaking, they are well-known companies. So in this case, we've got Scotiabank, Canadian Tire, TELUS. These are all well-known companies. But what they're trying to do through sponsorship is to associate themselves with um, organizations that share their values. So hockey in particular is one of those things that we think of as being very much part of the Canadian culture, Canadian experience, helping young men and women develop through sport. This is, this is a value that they want to reinforce, and this is why they choose to be sponsors as well. The way this works out is that uh, uh, if I'm Hockey Canada, I can't have five different banks sponsor me. So I partner with one bank, one bank that I think also matches my values as Hockey Canada. So these are deep partnerships and they're designed to reinforce values. Then a story comes along like this, which seems to run contrary, not just to Hockey Canada's values, but to those corporations. And so most of these corporations are, are a little stunned. They're a little shocked by these allegations. Uh, uh, the three big ones, Scotiabank, Canadian Tire and TELUS, have said they're going to redirect their sponsorship dollars still within the hockey world, but not necessarily to Hockey Canada properties. They've not said they're severing all relationships because again, there's an ongoing investigation, but depending on the results of the investigation, they may say, look, we can't, we can't support you anymore. You're not the company we thought you were. How big of an impact does this have on an organization like Hockey Canada? So to put it in some context for you, uh, the annual revenues for Hockey Canada is around 60 to $62 million. The single biggest amount of money they get comes from the federal government. It's around $5.6 million. And the federal government has put a freeze on that funding saying, well, before we give you any more, we need the results of this. The sponsors in total, and I, I've counted just off the, my quick analysis here, about 10 of them, uh, they total $10 million. So a couple of the bigger ones like Scotiabank, probably two to $3 million. Some of the smaller ones like Skip the Dishes, maybe it's two hundred and fifty to $500,000. So you put those two together, the federal government and the sponsors, that's one quarter of the revenue gone just like that. Uh, considering, um, you know, considering the sensitivity of issues like this and where we have come as a society, are you surprised Hockey Canada isn't doing more to, uh, to protect these sponsorships by making sure they're flying straight on these things? Right. So I would agree completely on this. Uh, the, the original allegation stems from 2018. Well, yes, I realize that's four years ago, but in terms of our consciousness around sexual assaults related to sports, that's not that long ago. 
And if, if I'm involved with the organization, my first response is not what I can do to protect my name, i.e. Hockey Canada's name or my brand. It is what is the right thing for us to do from a societal standpoint. Now, it seems like uh, this woman did bring a lawsuit and it seems that there has been a settlement worked out. So she is somewhat satisfied from all this, but it's all been done in secret and not shared with others. And this is the part I think that's concerning to people is, well, if you've done that here, how many other of these allegations have you done mm. and hushed up? The other little side of this, Scott, and it's not really related to the sexual assault allegation, was we learned that Hockey Canada sits on an investment fund. I believe it is over $50 million. These are all the various, shall we say, profits they've generated over the years. And they put it in this fund and this then gives them ability to do these settlements. I guess on one hand, I'm thrilled that they're not directly using the government dollars or the sponsorship dollars to do the settlements. But then the flip side of this is, then why do you need the money from the government if you're sitting on a pot that big? So as these things are being exposed, it's not giving us more confidence in the organization. It's giving us less confidence. I only got a few seconds left. What needs to be done to make this right for sponsors to return? Yeah, there's only one word here, and that's transparency. You know, mm. uh, you've got to you've got to go above and beyond the call now. Not only do you have to clear this one up, but you've got to talk about how you're going to handle future allegations like this and what you're going to do. You, in essence, you've lost the trust of your sponsors, and in essence, you've lost the trust of your fans. The only way to get it back is transparency, transparency transparency. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, Hockey Canada, uh, having sponsors put their money on pause during sexual assault allegations. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. I will. Namaste. <laughs> Back at you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, as we mentioned yesterday, the Ontario NDP have selected their new interim leader, uh, Peter Tabbins, and uh, he will, of course, guide the party as they select a new leader moving forward as Andrew Horvath has stepped down and uh, is here to talk about it. MPP for Hamilton Centre, former Ontario NDP leader and candidate for mayor. We'll see Andrea Horvath here now. Andrea, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well, thank you, Scott. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, so let's get it right off the top. Anything on mayor, anything you can uh, elaborate, anything you want to tell us, um, um, your thoughts? <laughs> uh, well, at this point, I'm, um, I'm hearing uh, from a lot of different people, and, uh, and it's very humbling and very uh, um, wonderful to hear people trying to encourage me to do exactly that. But at this point... We're still in a situation where the, the transition is happening. So Peter, yes, was confirmed, but there's still some work I need to do to help make sure that he's, you know, got everything he needs because that's the responsible thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and the legislature apparently is being called back at the beginning of August. So I'm putting my mind to that as well. Um, it, it's, it's, it is really humbling and it's really, um, it's really, thoughtful that people have uh, have been reaching out so much and i i really appreciate that i, I you know we learn very early on to never say never uh and so to say i'm not thinking about it would be inaccurate i i, I certainly am mm. but i also know i have some obligations uh that uh, you know that i have to fulfill how do you compare the two jobs if you were to whether it's the ontario ndp leader or the mayor of hamilton are they the same are they, are they different do they need different skill sets do they need similar 
Uh, Well, I think there's a a lot of crossover. Um, Of course, I came from municipal politics, as you may know. I was first elected Mm -hmm. uh, back in 1997, so I've served on council. I I certainly understand uh, the uh, municipal order of government. But but one of the things I I liked a lot about the municipal order of government is that it's it's less partisan. Uh, It's a lot more collaborative, or can be, uh, and it's it's really the, the closest to the people, right? I mean, it's literally the closest order of government to uh, to the people, to, to the lives of everyday people. And I, I got all of the passion and all of the drive uh, and all of the commitment to, that I've put into my role both as MPP and as leader from Hamilton, from Hamiltonians, and from mm. my, the work that I did municipally. And so uh, so there, there are a lot of similarities, uh, but there are also some differences. Leadership is, um, is something that... Uh, uh, that comes with experience and uh and you know it's been it's been 13 years that I've been leader of the Ontario NDP I've grown the party from literally when I was elected we didn't have party status in the Ontario legislature there were only mm-hmm. 7 MPPs I made 8 uh we grew to 10 uh then I grew the party to 20 to 40 and now of course we had a bit of a slide down to 31 but the party is stronger than it's ever been more financially sound than it's ever been continues to be the official opposition uh, twice in a row now which is also historic and every election for the last three elections uh, we've had a uh, uh, gender equity in the uh, in the caucus in other words 50 percent women 2014 2018 uh, and this time 60 uh, percent women 2022 so why step away, Andrea? I mean, does the party need a new direction? Uh, just needs new energy, new leadership. What? Why? Why step away at this point? Well, it it, it really is, I think, uh, an opportunity for renewal uh, in the party. And uh, we, I'm not uh, proud of the fact that we lost uh, nine seats. Uh, actually, we, we we didn't we didn't win eleven seats, and we gained two seats in different ridings. And so, mm. for as a leader, that that kind of thing has to be taken seriously. Uh, there was something that um, that didn't resonate, or there were or there were circumstances that we couldn't overcome uh, in terms of uh, holding all of our seats and growing. Uh, a political party needs to grow if it's going to form government. And the things that we cared about, like fixing our health care system, getting rid of hallway medicine, uh, you know, making sure people could afford a, a place to live in this in this province, those things were really important to everyday people. But they but they didn't vote for us, even though they were our priorities. So that means it's time to step back and 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 do some analysis as to you know why that is and how can we. Uh, how can we show Ontarians that they can have a party uh, that can address the things that, that matter most to them? They can have a government that can ad- address the things that matter most to them. That's the work that has to be done now, and it's better to be done, I think, with uh, with that new blood, you know, fresh perspective, new energy, uh, new excitement. That it, That's always a positive thing for a political party. So what does the party need to do, Andrea, to move forward? What does the party need to do uh, before the next election, per se? Well, that'll be uh, you know that'll be the determination of the new leader and uh, and the members of the of the party. So the the first piece, of course, as you've, you've mentioned, is the uh, handing over to the interim leader who will you know hold the government seat to the fire on the things that matter uh, to the people of this province, um, and that is an interim position. So the election of the new leader will will 
chart exactly that course that you're talking about. Uh, it's not up, for me, up to me at this point to say uh, what the party needs to do. It's up to the leader. In fact, it's up to the candidates for leadership who are, mm. run, who are going to be running uh, to listen to what the members of the party say and to, uh, to provide a vision for exactly that, what needs to be done to prepare to, uh, uh, to try to form government next time around. Any idea, Andrea, as far as the timeline when we will see a new leader? No, in fact, I thought that was perhaps going to be determined uh, uh, at a meeting that they held uh, last night, I think, and uh, it wasn't. And so that decision has been put off uh, because we're a very democratic party. And so the meeting, uh, although it was supposed to, I, I thought, make those determinations, the, the members that showed up to the meeting, the council delegates, um, had a different thing in mind. And so they've uh, they've postponed those uh, details uh, from uh uh, from you know being determined, I don't know when the next meeting will be uh, to uh, to you know to solidify that uh, those details, but but certainly um, you know they 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 have to be thinking about getting the process underway sooner rather than later, in my opinion. Andrea Horbath with us, MPP for Hamilton Centre, former Ontario NDP leader, and still possibly an option for mayor. Uh, stay tuned, Andrea. Thanks so much for taking the time. Good luck. Congratulations. Whatever you decide to do moving forward. Thanks so much, Scott. All the very best. Appreciate the time. All right. We were talking earlier on in the week about this. Um, I'm, I'm not sure whether the uh, the concern has died down or not or, um, you know, if uh, we're just moving on. But Ottawa is concerned of another wave of convoy protesters rolling into the city on Canada Day. Uh, it seems the police chief, the interim police chief, is uh, more than prepared this time out. To talk more about all of this, Randall Denley is with us, author, columnist with the Ottawa Citizen and the National Post, and is with us now. Randall, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. So what are your thoughts on this weekend? How concerned are those in Ottawa that uh, you're going to end up with a Freedom Convoy Part 2? I don't think uh, ordinary citizens here are particularly concerned about it. Officialdom, however, is uh, ostensibly very concerned. They've got a lot of the downtown sort of a motor-free zone where you've got to uh, check in and make sure you've got legitimate business before they let you through. So it's a bit of a... A fake war zone downtown. They got big fences up around the Supreme Court, concrete barriers. Like, we're ready for a major invasion here. The actual <laughs> planned event at this point is a picnic in a downtown park. Speeches, and, you know, they'll yeah. say what they want to say. I doubt that it'll come to anything more than that. But, you know, clearly if you're the, the acting police chief and the last guy got pushed out of his job because he didn't do enough in the face of something like this, you're not going to make the same mistake. So there'll be lots of police presence downtown. And it's going to be a, a weird candidate here, Scott, because we haven't had you know, the usual live thing on Parliament Hill since 2019, of course, because of the pandemic. And they've still decided, well, we're not going to do it on the Hill. They could have, but they're not. So they pushed it off to... Uh, nearby Le Breton Flats, the War Museum area. It's not where it's typically held. So a place where normally, you know, tens of thousands of Canadians would come and celebrate Canada Day is going to be all walled off, basically. And Is that going to be the future, Randall? I mean, because, again, it's something about standing there in front of the Parliament buildings that, that uh, makes the Canada Day. Uh, is this because of pandemics or is this because of concerns over security and such 
I, I think they're just sort of stuck on what to do with all this downtown because they they closed Wellington Street, the street in front of the Parliament buildings. Mm-hmm. It, it never reopened after the Freedom Convoy. There's different ideas being kicked around here about leaving it closed permanently, turning into a pedestrian mall, doing different things with it. Not sure that's really advancing particularly, but they just seem kind of content now to have it blocked off. It's not a very good image for uh, for our country, I don't think, and for the problem buildings. And of course, they're under reconstruction, so they're not you know what they would normally be, anyways. But I think it's. I hope next year we're going to see a normal candidate on Parliament Hill, as we've always had. To me, that's how you send a message about the status of things in your country. Right now, the message we're sending is, oh, my God, people disagree with us. Coming to town again. We're scared. Let's get extra police. <laughs> Let's bulk up. You know, I mean, how threatening is this, really? I don't think it's going to come to very much, but it's. Part of what the police are on the lookout for is, is anybody who's going to you know, make a sign or remark that could be seen as you know, racist, sexist, homophobic, anything. So, so have fun, folks, but you know, don't step <laughs> out of line. So, the as candidate here is a pretty big loose party where people just go out and sit the lawn and have a good time, but clearly that's not what we're doing this year. Uh, as time goes by and the convoy is behind Ottawa, is it more obvious to everybody what went wrong? Because as I sit back here, it seems quite simple. Um, the, these people came into town. They started setting up the three-ring circus, and everyone else just kind of stood around and watched them do it, then wondered you know, what to do after the event starts. Um, they did nothing for two weeks, and then they came in with the Emergencies Act. Does it get any more cut and dry than that? Well, pretty much, but it's actually a little bit worse because really, you know, we invited them in. The police said they hadn't they hadn't received any intelligence that they intended to stay, even though they were saying they intended to stay. Mm-hmm. It was in all the media. I guess they didn't receive the intelligence. And and the city went out of its way to accommodate them and say, there's a ballpark sort of adjacent to downtown. Say, oh, yeah, you folks can use that for like a base camp. It's almost as if they wanted them there to look, look how stupid these people are. Look how, how, how uh, primitive and rogue these people are. But then it just kept growing. Yeah, I don't know if they wanted them there, but it was just a really bad, uncoordinated police response. It's just, if you got all these people that are coming to your downtown and say, hey, we're going to park our trucks and stay here, safe bet would be to take that seriously. If they don't, they don't, <laughs> hey, no harm, but take it seriously rather than wait for them to get in, then you can't get them out, and then it became a big deal. What will be the I, Prime Minister's... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Randall. Yeah, I just thought the federal government's action on that was largely an overreaction. All you needed was an effective police action. As soon as they did that, it was over. So what about the Prime Minister's role this Canada Day? Uh, We remember him fueling the fire, getting mad at the 10% of truckers that weren't vaccinated, calling them misogynistic and racist and whatever. And then when they showed up, kind of turned around and and walked the other way and pretended it wasn't even happening. Uh, What is the Prime Minister's role this Canada Day? Will he speak of any of this? Will he just be quiet and and hope nothing happens? What's his role here? It's hard to say, Scott. He's keeping a pretty low profile these days. He just... You know, the thing he seems to be, he's really not 
into his job too much anymore. I don't know what he's going to do, but it would be great as the leader of the country if he could make some kind of conciliatory, unifying remarks on candidate. Because I mean, here there's some people who clearly most people disagree with, but they are Canadians, you know. And when they say, "Well, we're for freedom," to some extent, they mean my freedom to do whatever the heck I want. But at the same time. Somebody needs to speak up for freedom in this country because the government just takes more and more of it away. So it's not that they had no point when they were here. They just didn't present their points very well. So really... I, I think he needs to take note of the fact that not everybody's on his bandwagon. Do you see, it seems, in the, and this is just my opinion, in the last two, three, four weeks, the tide has really turned for the Prime Minister. And especially a lot of the media outlets that, that probably wouldn't criticize him are now um, pointing to his management or lack of management skills, too much power in the Prime Minister's office. Uh, he likes it that way. It, has, has the tone changed about the opinion of our Prime Minister post-pandemic? I, I think it has, and I think the... The key thing has changed, Scott, is the their long-standing incompetence is now mm-hmm. visible to a very large number of people in over the airport thing and the passport issue. People look at it like, like issuing a passport? How hard can that be? There was yeah. a letter to the editor of The Citizen this week from a chap who was a uh, assistant deputy minister in charge of this at one point. And I said, all you need to do is just validate them for an extra year yeah. and then catch up. Yeah. Like rather than make somebody wait in gigantic lines or just not have a passport, there's ways around it, but they don't seem to be able to come up with it. And the the air the airport thing is just a, an incredible mess. And, well, we didn't know all the flights would be coming at the same time. I guess they come in, you know, it's a surprise. They're just like simple things people expect it would be easy for government to do. They don't seem to be able to do them. And, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks go by. They just can't fix them. And it, people look at that and think, well, if they're that bad at these little things, how bad are they at everything else? What about gas tax relief? Um, it, it seems only, the, and we've only got a few seconds left, it's only the Prime Minister that is not talking about the high prices of, of, of fuel and energy. Because if you want high prices, they're good, yeah. right? Save the planet. We'll all use less fuel. So it would be hard for him to reverse on this because it's the exact opposite of what he's always argued for. But I think it shows the weakness of the policy. Do people like paying more than $2 for gas? No. Is it a big deal for them? Yes. And that his policy is to push gas prices ever higher. I think that's uh, not going to be too popular in the future. Randall Denley is with us, author and columnist for the Ottawa Citizen and the National Post, uh, talking about Canada Day celebrations this year. Randall, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. NATO preparing to undergo a massive change for the 21st century. Uh, what's Canada's role in all of that? Uh, the uh, uh, head of NATO has recently said that uh, Canada has to do more to hit its 2% uh, target. That is a floor, not a ceiling. Canada sitting at 1.2% of its uh uh, GDP, which uh, has actually gone down in the last two years. Let's bring in Stephen Sadman, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, and is with us now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. I'm doing well. How are you? 
I'm doing good, thanks. Uh, obviously, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has strengthened NATO and has recommitted a lot of the allies to this. We've seen that in spending and such. But what, is the, what does NATO have to do? What sort of changes do they have to make for the next century? Well, there's a variety of changes they have to make. Uh, the first thing that they're doing and much of the focus on right now is enlarging the commitment to Eastern Europe. So the we've had uh, about a thousand troops from NATO countries in each of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. We're now increasing the size of those troops. We are now putting as an, an alliance putting troops into Romania, Bulgaria, and, and Hungary, and other countries that are that are closest to the threat. Uh, we're committing more ships or more planes. Uh, so we're reinforcing the troops that have been there, and we're making it more permanent. They haven't really used the word permanent lately, but uh, when this first happened, there's a lot of hesitancy to suggest that this was going to last a while. But since the Russians have done their best to tear up any kind of sense of agreement between uh, NATO and Russia, uh, this, uh, this meeting is much more about recognizing the reality and preparing for the long haul. Uh, obviously, we remember the days of tear down that wall, and many thought the Cold War was over, and here we are again. Do, where does Canada fit into this puzzle? Well, Canada has been leading the mission in Latvia. They've also been uh, having uh, periodic rotations of our aircraft in Romania to patrol Romanian airspace uh, and to help train with the Romanians. But it's the Latvia mission that's been the one that's been most notice- noticeable, which is that at what I said before, missions before, it meant that uh, Canada as a leader in Latvia was equivalent to the U.S. and Poland, the British in uh, Estonia, and the Germans in Lithuania. Uh, so as a lead nation, as a framework nation, it had a lot of responsibility for organizing the effort. Uh, and so while the balance of the organization is going to shift a little bit with NATO, Headquarters played a greater role in centralizing things and coordinating across all these different missions. Canada is still going to be one of the largest contributing countries. That is, it's going to send more troops than most to the region and particularly to Latvia. And it'll still be responsible largely for coordinating something like nine other countries that are operating in Latvia. Uh, obviously, we're seeing uh, lots of chatter regarding uh, the 2% and hitting that 2%. Will we see Canada move towards that? It seems whenever anyone brings that up, they point to the troops that they put in. They have uh, mm-hmm. will we'll point to, uh, you, you know, just even the announcements today about opening embassies and such. It soon, seems as soon as NATO starts saying something, uh, we start talking about NORAD or whatever. So will we see any changes at the base of this and any increases in our NATO spending? I think we will see any changes. We're not going to get to 2%, but that's partly because our economy keeps growing. And the best way to get to 2% is for our economy to tank because, again, it's 2% of our GDP, which means that if you shrink the size of the economy, then suddenly you look really good, which is the Yeah, but Stephen, every, every, every country could say that, Stephen. Like, that's like almost fudging no, numbers. Either, either we're contributing or we're not. Precisely because changes are based on the size of your economy. It's an important thing. And so Greece always looks great in this, but nobody considers Greece to be a top 10 or top 20 ally. It's an alliance of 30 countries. They might not be in the top 25, but they lead in in, in their, their number because they've got a, a lousy economy. They spend a lot of it on personnel, so it doesn't mean that they're actually uh, spending on technology. And most of their military is pointed to Turkey, which happens to be a NATO ally. And so it matters what we spend, but it matters how we spend it. Uh, I think 
the big question we have right now out of this meeting is exactly how much are we increasing the troops in Philadelphia? There's been a lot of confusion about that. Uh, the, the stories I've read have not really shown a clear commitment on the part of this government. I think there's been a lot of confusion the last couple of weeks about what new money means that, you know, the money we're now going to spend on NORAD modernization, which is an allied contribution, really, since uh, it is, you know, it's about our defense. It's about America's defense. And the last I checked, there are two members of the alliance. So if we spend that money, if it's new money, that would boost things up. I think over the long term, the $40 billion commitment to improve those sensors will make a difference in, in the, our statistics. Uh, the decision we've made to buy the F-35, that as that contract rolls out, that will mean we will be spending more money. I don't anticipate seeing defense cuts anytime in the near future. The question is, will the defense spending grow to keep up with defense inflation, which moves much faster than the inflation that we experience as just, you know, people who buy gas and buy houses. So those that are critical of Canada's contribution, um, not warranted? Oh, I think we can be critical. Again, we're so, there's confusion about what, we, what we're committing, both in terms of the new troops or new resources to Latvia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not clear what our money from for NORAD modernization is, how much of that is new. Uh, a few months ago in the aftermath of the invasion, there was like, wow, we're going to spend more money. And the figure of $8 billion was bandied about. And suddenly it became $8 billion over five years, which is not really as, as big right. yeah. of a deal. They, they've, set, follow, they've set expectations and they haven't really met them. But I would say we are on a track towards spending more money simply because we are buying the ships. We are buying the planes. Uh, one of the big impediments to actually spending more money is the personnel crisis we have, which yeah. is that we're down about 10,000 troops, which means that's money that's not being spent on feeding, housing, paying these these people. So it's going to be hard for us to improve our 2% number as long as the economy is going really well and as long as we got a per, you know, a sexual misconduct crisis that's deterring people from applying. So it's it's both a good news means bad news. That is, good good economy means it's hard to recruit. And bad news means bad news, which is you know this crisis that we've had over – decades but has really come to the fore the past year send signals to women and and, and, uh people from historically excluded groups that the military might not be for them uh so we need to make some changes in our personnel policies which again this is something we're working on and if we make progress on that that will help out with the improvement Stephen Sabin with us, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University NATO and its changes for the 21st century Stephen, thanks for the time be well Uh, you too scott Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciate it. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. The Bulldogs are soaring. They're going to fly. Go, dogs! Go! Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.